Hello, and welcome back to the New River Church Podcast. Today we're going to be starting a new series on the book of Luke called Jesus, the Inviting Messiah. We look forward to getting to know the gospel better together with you, and we hope that today's message encourages you and blesses you. For more information, check out newriverchurch.org. Luke chapter 4 this morning. It would be really great if next Sunday afternoon around 4 o'clock you prayed for Karis and me. Uh, Our youngest daughter is getting married next Sunday afternoon. And I'm not so sure how I feel about that. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm happy for them. Don't get me wrong. I really am but my heart is a mixed bungle of emotions. And um, she's asked me to do the ceremony, and I'm really not sure how I feel about that. And um, every time I go to start writing, like I have a pile of notes, but every time I go to start writing, I start to cry. And so I got nothing so far. I keep having like these flashbacks of like when Karis first told me that she was pregnant with Carissa, 28 years ago almost now. And, uh, you know, like we weren't supposed to have any kids. That's our, that was part of our story. We, um, we were, we, we had to work hard to get our first two kids, uh, you know, medicine and doctor's visits and surgeries and stuff like that. And so the first two kids we worked for and we figured that's great. We're grateful God gave us a boy and a girl. We're happy, content, you know, our nest is full. And then our son was only three months old and Karis was pregnant with Carissa. And we were surprised. (laughs) And, uh, but I remember my first thought was, God's doing something really special here. Because like this kid's not supposed to be here, right? You know what I mean? Like this and God's doing something here. This is like, and uh, so we were just floored by it. And so that's why we, we named her Carissa Grace. Carissa means grace, and then grace means grace. So she's Grace Grace, because we believe that she's a double portion of God's grace to us. <laughs> and... Uh, and next week, I have to put her hand into the hand of some other guy. <laughs> and I can't quite tell if I'm looking forward to it or if I'm dreading it, to be honest. And I just hope and pray that he has the ability to love her the way that I do. But time will tell. It's kind of hit me up. All these thoughts, oh man, so many of them. But like one of them was just, you know, up until now, I was the only man in the world willing to take a bullet for her. And I sure hope he's willing to do that. And what's more, like this week is Valentine's Day, right? And uh, I'm not a fan of Valentine's Day, I'll just be honest. Um, don't get me wrong, I treat Karis well and we, she always has a good day. But the commercialization of love 
just really drives me nuts and irks me. It turns love into this whole sappy, happy thing. And that's just not love at all, right? Like love and romance are actually two different things. And romance really doesn't have anything to do with love. They're, very, they're two separate things. Um, the hardest thing that you'll ever do is love someone else. Literally, the hardest thing. Because love means that you are willing to do what's best for another person. Not what makes them happy. Not what makes you happy. But actually what is God's best for that person. That's what love is. And love will always cost you something to do that. Always. You cannot love someone for free. Loving always costs the lover. And have you ever noticed how some people are easier to love than others? And, and maybe that's because those people give us some sort of kickback in return for our love. And maybe that's why that's a little easier to love them. I get the warm fuzzies or I get something out of it. So it's easier to love them. But what about loving someone who gives me nothing in return? What about loving someone who actually takes from me? See, that's when I realize how selfish and tainted my love is. And have you ever noticed that it's easier to see how much it costs you to love someone else than it is to cost for the, than it is than it costs them to love you? Like, look in the mirror. It's not easy to love you you actually cost other people something for them to love you, see? Um, and I'm not saying that to put you down. I know you're a peach, but you got a pit, right? We all do. So, so think about this. It costs something to love Jesus, doesn't it? And Jesus is perfect. I mean, right? Salvation is free. It costs nothing to get fire insurance. Because Jesus paid for that on the cross, did he not? So I just take that. But if I want to have a relationship with Jesus that goes deeper, that becomes intimate, that becomes close, that's going to cost me something to have that relationship with him. And he's perfect. So if it costs us something to have a relationship with Jesus, someone who's perfect, then you can bet you it's going to cost you something to have a relationship and to love someone who's not perfect perfect, right? And so the point of all this is this. I'm not trying to put a wet blanket on your Valentine's Day nuptials, okay? I'm just trying to say that loving others is difficult and it will cost. And this year, our theme as a church is to make room for one more. And that's going to cost you something. If you are going to make room for one more, it will cost you. And that's under normal circumstances, so then think about the worst person in your life. The worst person, that person who has abused you, maybe that person who has wronged you, or maybe just that person who really offends you, that person that just gets under your skin. It might surprise you to find out that Jesus loves them too. And that loving you is not any easier for Jesus than it is to love them. It cost him the cross to love you both. 
same price, same great price. So it's not any easier for Jesus to love you than it is for Jesus to love the worst person in your life. And this is the part of the gospel that might offend you. It often does offend people because it rubs against like our sense of justice because for us, vengeance on that person, that's justice. That's how I picture justice happening. They, they finally get theirs. But to think that God might forgive that person or that God might welcome that person into heaven and be kind to them, Ooh, that's unacceptable. And then let's take that even further. What if God over, what if God passes over something that you need in favor of loving that person? I don't even have a word for that. That's more than unacceptable. Well, you're going to really like Luke chapter four today because that's where we're going. So, as we start, just open up your Bibles, would you, to Luke 4, and I want you to see the whole chapter so that we can just get a feel for the outline, because we're not going to read the whole chapter, but it's important for you to see the whole context of the chapter. So notice that the very first part of chapter 4, as it opens, the first 13 verses have to do with Jesus's temptation. And this is a pretty common story that a lot of Christians know. We, we know the story about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. You know, he's fasting for 40 days. And the Bible says after that, he was hungry, which that's like the first miracle because I'd be hungry by lunch, right? So he's fasting 40 days, then he's hungry. And the devil comes and he says, hey, why don't you turn these stones into bread? And Jesus, you know, says, uh, no. And then the second temptation is the devil says, hey, why don't you, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. They're all, you can have them all. You'll be famous. And Jesus says, you know, no, he turns that one down. And then the third temptation was, hey, Jesus, why don't you go up to the top of the temple and jump off the roof? And then the angels will protect you. And everybody will see how much God has favor on your life. And Jesus says, I'm not going to test God that way. So those are the first three temptations. And a lot of times where a lot of folks are fairly familiar with that, okay? But he's taunt, the devil's taunting him to do these things. Um, but now we come into verse 14 of chapter 4, and we notice that Jesus experiences what I'm going to call are his fourth and his fifth temptations, and I know that they're not traditionally called this, but I think you'll see what I mean in a second. There's some pretty strong temptation in the next two snapshots that happen as Luke chapter 4 continues on. Let's just read. I'll start with chapter 4, verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. Stop right there just for a quick second. So remember that second temptation about worshiping the devil and then all the kingdoms of the world? You'll be famous. Everybody's going to love you, Jesus. Well, that's coming true, isn't it? Everybody's loving Jesus. They're all praising him and they're coming from all over to hear him. So Jesus is getting it without having to compromise himself, right? So praise God for that. Continue with verse 16. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. 
So this is his hometown. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue and as was his custom, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Okay, stop right there for a second. So Jesus goes to his hometown. It's the Sabbath, shows up in his local synagogue. They hand him a scroll from Isaiah. And Jesus turns to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And he reads this. And you'll notice that it's almost word for word, except Jesus leaves out the last part, a really important part. Look at Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. This is the text. And then compare this with what Jesus read in Luke 4. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. You compare the two and you notice Jesus left out that last line about the day of vengeance of our God. Okay, now, You've got to think like a first century Jew for a second. Put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. If you're one of them, okay, then you and generations before you for hundreds of years. I mean, just think about as long as the United States has been a nation. Let's just go there and longer. Like it's a long time, right? Hundreds and hundreds of years you and the generations before you have been languishing under the oppressive thumb of one Gentile nation after another who, just like Hamas, on their worst day, are vowing to wipe you and all your people off the face of the earth. And on their very best days, they just oppressed you. They only enslaved you, you know, maybe taxed the snot out of you. Like, that's the best day. And the worst day, they want to kill you. And you and generations before you have been living under that kind of oppression. So when you're praying for God to bring the Messiah to save you, you're thinking the best way for God to do that is to take fury out on your enemies, to exact vengeance on your... Vengeance on them means liberty for us. And you have Isaiah 61 to support your case. So you're being biblical, you would say. So then Jesus reads their favorite section of scripture and leaves out the good part, <laughs> right? And this is why Luke tells us in verse 20 
that everyone in the synagogue that day fastened their eyes on him. The, the Greek there, it implies intense emotion. In other words, they're giving him the squirrely eye. They're giving him the side eye. They are staring him down. Whatever you want to call it, you could feel the tension in the room. You could cut it with a knife. Yet, Jesus, he's our hometown boy. I mean, okay, we can give him a little wiggle room. That's fine, because he's one of ours. I mean, this is Joseph and Mary's kid. All right, it's fine. That's verse 22. They're all amazed by his gracious words, and they thought it was great that this is Joseph's son. All right? But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? Jesus presses the matter further. Jesus could have, at that moment, just closed up the scroll, walked away, had a great time in church today, everybody. But he doesn't. Look at verse 23. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of those Israelite widows, but rather he was sent to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. She's a Gentile, an enemy of Israel. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. <laughs> so not only does Jesus leave out the good part, from Isaiah 61, verse 2, about having vengeance on my enemies. But then Jesus presses the issue, and he has the nerve to bring up two events from Israel's history, from the Old Testament. You can read this in the book of Kings. At a time when God literally passed up the Israelites. I mean, Elijah and Elisha are two of the greatest prophets in their history. And he, when they passed up an Israelite and went instead to serve a Gentile, one of their enemies. And what's worse, Naaman was a general of the Syrian army. So you know he fought battles and killed Israelites himself with his own hands in skirmishes and battles and fights. And yet God doesn't heal Israelite lepers. He heals Naaman the leper. Are you beginning to feel the injustice and the anger starting to boil? See, I can accept God's love for an enemy. Like, I get it. He's God. God is love. Yada, yada, yada. He's got to do that. Is that not your attitude sometimes? I know, I know God. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't like it, but I know you have to do it because you're God. God loves everybody. But for God to overlook my needs in favor of my enemy, and then for God to bless my enemy while I suffer, 
That is absolutely unacceptable in my mind. Do you feel the same way? And this is why Jesus got the reaction that he got in Nazareth that day. Look at verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. How'd they feel about it? They were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of the town, they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, first thing we gotta observe is this. You notice that that sounds really similar to the third temptation that he faced where the devil said, climb up to the top of this roof and jump off it and the angels will protect you. So now here Jesus is about to be thrown off a cliff and God protects him. So what's the difference between the two events? In the one event, Jesus is forcing God's hand. He's testing. In the other event, Jesus is obeying his father. He's doing what he's told to do. He's on mission and the father is working with him, right? So two very similar events, but very different purposes. So that's pretty interesting. And here's the lesson that we can learn, I think, from this, that the difference between testing God and not testing God is obedience to God. Like in Nazareth, Jesus is doing the father's business. He's communicating the heart of God for all people, even those people. And they react by trying to throw him off a cliff. And God protects him, right? He's showing his favor on Christ's life. But here's something that they didn't see. When I see God being kind to someone that I don't like, I'll just say it that way, I see God's love for me. Because if he can love them, then certainly he can love me too. And these people didn't see what you and I can see looking back, but that Jesus would actually take God's vengeance. God did exact vengeance on Israel's enemies, and God did exact vengeance on Israel. And God has exacted vengeance on your life and mine. He did it when Jesus died on the cross. Romans tells us that all of the wrath of God, all of the wrath of God coming at your sin and my sin was put on Christ. He absorbed that wrath. So it's hard for us to accept this, but here's the truth. You were an enemy of God too. And his vengeance was coming on you. And it's only because of his gracious work on the cross and the fact that you received that work that you're escaping his vengeance, right? So praise God for that. But in this moment, these people don't see that, do they? Not at all. And so they're furious because God might possibly have mercy and grace 
on their enemies. Now, that's the reaction to the crowd. That's the reaction to Jesus by the crowd in his hometown of Nazareth. And I humbly suggest that that's his fourth temptation. Because in the moment, Jesus could have caved into the pressure of appeasing the crowd. There, he could have stopped reading after Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He could have stopped while everybody was giving him a little bit of leeway. Oh, you're Joseph's kid. All right, that's great. You're so great. He could have stopped right there, but he didn't. Jesus wasn't giving in to the pressure of the crowd to appease them. I'm thinking if I was in Jesus's shoes, I would have definitely caved to the pressure to avoid getting chucked off a cliff. Wouldn't you? Okay, fourth temptation. And now the fifth temptation. We go on to Luke chapter four, verse 31. So then Jesus leaves Nazareth. He goes down to Capernaum, another town in Galilee. And on the Sabbath, he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Stop right there real quick. You notice he's, they're amazed. And the crowd in Nazareth was also amazed. So both crowds amazed. You know, when you're studying the Bible, you want to look for trends like that because it really does help it to come alive and help you to understand it. So both crowds are responding to Jesus' teaching at first in the exact same way. They're both amazed at his teaching. Look at verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, go away. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Stop right there for a quick second. So the people in Nazareth, he's just Joseph's son. In Capernaum, they're just amazed at his teaching. And who is it to first identify Jesus as the Son of God? A demon. Very interesting. In Luke, the only ones to identify Jesus as the Son of God, angel, the devil himself, and a demon. Everybody else just saw him as Joseph's kid or son of man. Jesus called himself the son of man. Anyway, so his true identity is revealed here in Luke chapter 4 by a demon. And Jesus says to him in verse 35, be quiet. He said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed. There's that word again. And they said to each other, what words these are? And with authority and power, he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. And then skim the rest of chapter 4, would you? We won't read it, but just skim it. You'll notice the next thing Jesus does is he heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. That's great. And then the next thing, the word has spread out through the whole area. And people are bringing all their sick friends and all their demon-possessed friends. They're all coming to the house where Jesus is. And Jesus is literally up all night long, ministering, healing, delivering to these people. And then you come to verse 42, at daybreak, all night long. 
At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. So they were so caught up with Jesus, they didn't want him to go. Two very different reactions, wouldn't you admit? The people in Nazareth want to throw him off a cliff. The people in Capernaum, they don't want him to go. And Jesus said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And I propose that this represents Jesus's fifth temptation, the temptation towards popularity. I mean, how would you handle this? You've been skyrocketed. You are now a rock star and everybody is coming to you Does that popularity tempt you a little bit? I mean, suddenly your social media page, man, your your Instagram page is blowing up. Like you're getting more likes than the Kardashians, you know? And man, you're just, whoo. That feels good, doesn't it? How does Jesus respond to it? You know, how, how you respond to popularity says a lot about your character. There are some people who skyrocket to fame and implode. We know those stories. And there's other people that it just doesn't seem to shake them. And this is Jesus. What does Jesus do? He seeks for um, getting alone. He wants to get solitary, go to a solitary place. And then when the crowd says, we want you to stay, Jesus, Jesus goes, you know, I actually need to get over here to these other small towns and minister to them too, away from the crazy crowd. So we see some similarities between these two snapshots in Jesus' life. We we see, first of all, that both crowds are amazed by his teaching. So at first, they love him. In Nazareth, Jesus reads from Isaiah, and he claims that he came to fulfill it. And then in Capernaum, what does Jesus do? He actually fulfills it. He does. He sets people free, the captives free, and heals the sick and all that sort of thing. So that's kind of cool. And then there's a big difference in the way that these two towns responded to Jesus. In Nazareth, as we've pointed out, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. In Capernaum, they they want him to stay. So in Nazareth, he gives a gracious message. Think about this. His message in Nazareth was gracious. God loves everyone. And he's come even for those people, the enemies. He loves everyone. And by proxy, if he loves them, then he can love me. Like that ought to be the message. And yet that's not how they responded. They want to kill him. And in Capernaum, he comes, with, comes in with a gracious but authoritative message, Luke tells us. He preaches with authority. Demons get cast out. Miracles take place. And what happens? Oh, he gets put on the A-list and he skyrockets to fame. So what kind of lessons can you and I learn from this? I think we can learn some lessons about ourselves. The first lesson we can learn is this. It's easier to love those who struggle than it is to love my enemies. I can have mercy and grace all day long 
for someone who is like me who is hurting. But someone who opposes me or hates me, that's a different story. And for Jesus to come along and to say that he wants what's best for that person, that's not the Jesus that I signed up for. I don't want that Jesus. I want the Jesus that hates the people that I hate and loves me too. But that's not who Jesus really is, is it? That's the problem. I intuitively know, I intuitively know that that's the heart of God, that he loves even my enemies. And you know what that tells me? My heart needs to become his heart. And I'm not so sure I'm ready for that sacrifice. How about you? I, I look around like we're talking about making room for one more, right? It's a church. Like look around our sanctuary and notice who's not here. You notice that everybody in this room is pretty much similar. But what if there's a person that were to show up here and sit in that seat right there? Somebody that mm, would make you really uncomfortable. I'll just let you decide who that person is. It might be different for each one of us. But person, if they walked in this door, you'd be, you would be instantly uncomfortable. Can you make room for that person? Because Jesus is literally asking you to. I'm not so sure I'm ready for that kind of sacrifice. I'm not so sure that I'm ready for my nice church service to be interrupted that way. But maybe the Lord's saying it's time to get ready for that disruption. I feel the people, I feel like the people in Capernaum, frankly, had it easier than the people in Nazareth, don't you? I mean, the people in Nazareth had to hear about God's love for their enemies, and that's not an easy message. We all know that. But the people in Capernaum, they got miracles. Like, who doesn't love a miracle, right? Of course, everybody came around. I mean, sure, why not? Who doesn't want that kind of Jesus? Absolutely. Loving my enemy, that's the hard part of the Christian life. And can I just be honest? I see myself in this, and I don't like it and I repent. How about you? And the second thing that I see as I come to this is that temptation, temptation in the way that I respond to it, temptation touches me really deep. It touches deep, hidden places in my heart, and I need help. I see that. Like, like, temptation goes so much deeper than just the occasional thought to look at porn or get a drink or something. Although, you know, like, those are temptations. Sure, I get it, and whatever it is for you. And I'm not minimizing that, but I'm saying it goes so much deeper. Like, those behaviors are small potatoes compared to the greater stuff going on down in the recesses of my soul. Let me give you a couple of examples as I look at Luke chapter four, um, I like to be comfortable. And let's just face it, if I could turn stones into bread, I would in a heartbeat. 
Wouldn't that be great given the price of groceries? Huh? Hey, honey, what do you want for dinner tonight? Poof. <laughs> there it is. Great. Go get me a rock. We're getting dinner, right? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I love to be comfortable. And if I could have the power of God to do that, I would absolutely use the power of God to my advantage in that way. Would you not as well? God, I could use a big flat screen TV. Poof. Right? I mean, I want this. I want a more comfortable car. Right? We would all do it. I see that about myself and I don't like it. And I have to admit that I'm enamored by the kingdoms of this world. I love the flash and the pizzazz and the lights and the glitter. It grabs me. It grabs me every time. And I've sold my soul for far less. And as much as I'd like to deny it, I also have gotten caught up in the commercialism and the materialism that is Western culture. I have. I like it all. And if it, take, if it took compromising a little bit to get it, well, I think I'd be seriously tempted to do that. And you probably would too. And I think I also see that I would try to force God's hand if I could. I, matter of fact, I've tried. I mean, I've not literally jumped off buildings to put God to the test, uh, but I have done stupid things in the name of faith and regretted it. I have. And I have tried to manipulate God so that I can get him to do things that I want to do. Have you, have you ever prayed this prayer? Have you ever done this? Like, oh, I know, I, you know, I know if I do this, he'll, he'll forgive me if I just ask for forgiveness. So I'm just going to go ahead and do this and then ask for forgiveness. And that's a dirty game, isn't it? I've played it. Guilty as charged. I see that in myself and I'm, I don't like it. I, I like the praise of men. I'll admit that. I like it a lot. I hunger for kudos and back scratches and attaboys. I like those. Sometimes I, I have not spoken truth. Sometimes I've watered things down. Sometimes I've backpedaled because I didn't want to, and I said this, I didn't want to offend them, them. But really what it came down to was I didn't want to make myself uncomfortable by their potential reaction. So that was really about me, not about them. Right? Oh, Lord, forgive me. I see that in myself. And here's Jesus. Like if, that, if I was Jesus that day, I totally would not have pressed the issue in order to avoid getting thrown off a cliff. And I also see the fact that I want revenge. I'm so much like those people in Nazareth. It's not funny. And revenge to me feels like justice. There are people that I would love to see go to jail or better. There's people I would love to see hanged in the public square. And I've even prayed for it. I've even said, God, why don't you just put that person in jail? And you know who they are. It's been a long time since I've looked at social media, but I remember there's a lot of that on social media. But the thought of them being forgiven 
like the thought of them getting blessed by God, that galls me. But you know what I see in Luke chapter 4 that, well, that actually would be God's heart for them, isn't it? See? You see what I mean? I feel like I'm exposed in Luke chapter 4. As I see Jesus in action and at work, here's my heart in full display, and it's just not pretty. So you see what happens? When I see Jesus for who he is, I begin to see myself for who I am. And honestly, in humility, when I realize that Jesus has love for my enemies, and I realize that I see myself in all these flaws, I realize I'm an enemy of his, then I can only come to one conclusion, and that would be, if he can love them, well, then he can love me too because I need him as much as they do. Because I'm no peach like I thought I was. See? And since he loves sinners, praise God, he loves me. Because I am the worst of sinners. I am. See? So if I want vengeance on them, well, I have to accept that, well, I need vengeance on me too. And I really don't want that. So I'm going to humble myself before God and ask for his mercy and praise God. I'm going to get it because I see the way that he treats those people. And if he treats them with grace, he'll treat me with grace. Thank you, Jesus. So what do you see about yourself this morning? Let's pray, okay? Lord, I thank you so much for your word and the power of your word. Your word really is, um, it, it is like a light that exposes me. And I thank you so much, God, that your word would lay me bare like it has because I see who I really am. And Lord, who I really am is someone who really needs you. And I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you love me that way. So would you just in the quietness of this moment Ask Jesus to forgive you. I don't know what he's exposed about your own heart this morning, but whatever it is, hear this. He exposed it not to shame you. He exposed it because he loves you and he actually wants to get rid of it. He wants to set you free. That thing has been weighing you down and it's been a chain on your heart. Maybe without you even knowing it, but your heart's been heavier because of it. And Jesus has now exposed it to get rid of it, to set you free. 
This morning, I also want to encourage you to bring your disappointment to him. It's okay. To be disappointed with Jesus is part of the normal course of affairs for someone who's going to try to follow him because he's going to do things that uh, just don't make sense in your mind. But hear this, he loves you and he does know what's best and you can trust him. And he wants to walk with you through this and in this. He wants you to see him in a way that you've not seen him before. Some of the deepest things that Jesus has to show you about himself, he can only show you in the midst of suffering, pain. So I just encourage you this morning to bring your, uh, bring that to him. Because listen, if he can love Naaman the Syrian, if he can love the widow of Zarephath, well, then he can love you too. Thanks for joining us again this week. We hope that this message truly blessed you. For more information, check us out at newriverchurch.org.